Good morning, everyone. You can remain standing. We're going to read the scripture in just a moment. We're going to use as our text of this morning from the book of Philippians, New Testament, chapter 2. Read the first 11 verses there. What I want to do today is uh, share with you from my heart. So it's not going to be a really proper sermon, but I want to share with you from my heart a reminder to us of who we are as a church, our DNA, our essence, why we exist, and I want to predict the future. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm not from a lineage of prophets. So I don't, I don't see the future very well, very often, but I can predict our future in part, and I want to share with you a little bit about that today. Let me remind you about our mission. Our mission is to help people to know Jesus Christ, to know them in a personal way, to be related to Him so that we can have an understanding of who God is and a connection with Him that's intimate and real, personal. So we want to help people know Jesus. We also want to help people grow in that relationship because life is a process and God transforms us bit by bit. And so we want to grow. We want to develop into the image of Christ, the character of Christ. And the last thing we want to do the context of our mission is to go and share this good news, this message with others. So we want to know Jesus, grow in our relationship with him, and go telling others about this relationship. That's our mission. That's why we exist as a church. And today I want to just unpack our vision a little bit and predict the future. Again, from Philippians chapter 2, let me uh, encourage you to consider these words. It first uh, reminds us of the nature of our relationship together as we share vision together, and then ultimately... This passage reminds us of who Jesus is and his ultimate lordship. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May God inspire us today through his, his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. A few years ago, I was with friends, and we were visiting Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia. If you've been to Colonial Williamsburg, you know it's a very historic place, a very fascinating a part of the foundational uh, leadership and governance positions of the United States. And uh, Colonial Williamsburg is, uh, is set up, and a lot of the buildings there have been restored. There's some ancient buildings, uh, 18th century motif and and I was with about seven or eight of my friends and we were we were touring Williamsburg it was time for lunch and so we went into 
an original pub, a tavern, if you will, for lunch. And it was called, it was called the Shields Tavern. And we went in there and it was all in 18th century decor and all the waitresses were in 18th century garb, their dresses and their little head coverings and so forth. And it was very quaint and, and very nice. And as uh, is the custom in Williamsburg, they have people who are dressed in period and also then characters who appear from place to place who actually portray that particular character from the period, 18th century. And in between when the waitress came to take our order and when the food was delivered, a man emerged in this restaurant and he introduced himself, himself as James Shields, who was the owner and proprietor of Shields Tavern. Now, this guy uh, was an actor, of course, but he was dressed in period. Uh, picture Ben Franklin, you know, with the, with the knee socks and the long coat. And, uh, and he was a very large man. And he was holding this pewter mug, you know, uh, presumably with ale. And he was all dramatic. And he was, he was telling us big stories about his political uh, uh, perspectives and, and other notes of interest about the pub and about his relationships. And he had, he had mentioned and, that he was a loyalist to King George, that, that here in 1749, uh, those people with any sense will remain loyal to the king and to the crown. And this talk of revolution is anathema to him, and he was very much opposed to that. And then he, he went off and he was talking about his arch rival down the street who owned another tavern. His name, his name was Henry Weatherburn, and he hated Henry Weatherburn, and he was his enemy, and blah, 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 blah. This guy was very loud. He was very dramatic. He was almost bombastic almost to the point of being annoying. He came to our table, and he's kind of working the crowd, and he came to our table, and he decided that he would pick our table because there were seven or eight of us, and he would ask each one of us to introduce ourselves and then to tell everyone in the restaurant what we do for a living. And so he starts working his way around the table. And What's your name, sir? My name is Larry. What do you do? I'm a quality control engineer. Quality control? Never heard of that. What, what does that possibly mean? You know, and he was you know, playing ignorant, you know, from his 18th century perspective. What's your name? My name is Walter. I'm a banker. Oh, a banker. That's great. We don't have much money here in the colonies. You know, it must be a great temptation for you to work around so much money all the time. Blah, blah. You know, he was just kind of pushing it. And as it turned out, they were working his, working his way around the table, and he was slapping people in the back and carrying on, and, and uh, I wasn't enjoying it much. And I was going to be the last one that he uh, picked on that day. And so I was decided I would distract myself from his, uh, from his activities, his shtick, by reading the menu. So I'm starting to read the menu, and I flip it over on the back. And at the bottom of the back of the menu, there was a brief history of Shields Tavern and of James Shields, and that he had inherited his business from his wife, Anne, and that and Henry Weatherburn, the chief rival, was mentioned, you know, in the context and so forth. So I, so in two or three paragraphs, I actually knew the history of James Shields and the Shields Tavern. Now remember, he had mentioned to us that it was 1749. And what I was reading here was the immediate years following 1749, and then I had an idea. 
he finally came to me and he said, and what is your name, sir, and what do you do? And I said, my name is Greg. And he said, and what do you do, sir? I said, I'm a prophet of God. Oh, he said, we have among us, everyone, please, every, everyone notice, we have among us a prophet of God. He said, please, sir, if you, if you do not mind, please grace us with a prophecy. I said, well, all right, if you insist. And I said, thus says the Lord Almighty. While you are a loyalist to King George, in 25 short years, these colonies will revolt. And they will defeat the most powerful army in the face of the earth, the Redcoats of Great Britain. And these colonies will become United States of the Americas. And while that is bad news to you, I have even worse news for you, sir. Thus says the Lord, within the next year, you will be dead. And within a year after that, your darling wife, Anne, will marry your chief rival, Henry Weatherburn. <laughs> and they will live happily ever after. <laughs> and it had, the, it had the desired effect. It closed him down and sent him out of the room. It literally <laughs> flabbergasted him. Is that a great story? I love that story. Well, having said that, I'll just remind you, if you're going to be a prophet, it really helps to know what's going to happen ahead of time. <laughs> if you could just get, get it on the back of a menu somewhere, then you know what's going to happen. <laughs> and of course, my prophecy was 100% accurate because it helps to know what's going to happen. Well, here's a truth. You tell me your vision, and I can predict your future. You tell me what you believe in. You tell me what motivates you. You tell me what your sense of purpose is. I'll predict your future. If I were to ask you what, what has God designed for your life in the next five years, the next ten years, what you tell me and the way you tell me, I'll be able to predict your future, at least in part. And I think that's true in the life of an individual, and I think that's true in the life of an organization, and particularly true in the life of a church. You tell me what the vision of a church is, and I'll tell you, I'll predict the future of that church. On your outline today, you'll see what we are going to do together. This is our vision for the future here at Union Chapel, and therefore, I can predict our future. Now, the first part of that vision starts with a W, and that stands for win the lost. Win the lost. Let me tell you a truth. God tends to use each one of us in similar ways over the entire course of our lives because of the way we are shaped and our personality and our experiences, our natural talents, the spiritual gifts that God gives us. These are without repentance. They're given to us, and God doesn't take them away. And so we are shaped, we are created into a particular experience mold, and as a result of that, we have a sweet spot, we have a, we have a wheelhouse, we have a place where we're most effective, where our capacity is at the highest. God will tend to use us in the context of those strengths in similar ways over the course of our lives. And so the ways that God has used you in the past 
are likely the ways that God is using you now and will continue to use you in the future. And so it's important to know that. In the context, in the context of our church here at Union Chapel, it's not a coincidence that God calls us to reach out to people, to win people who are outside of the bounds of the faith. Because it's in keeping with the, the primary gifts of, of, of our pastoral staff and many of us in the life of the church, we have, we have a sense that God is calling us outward. Now, you may not know this, but in church consultation, there's a, there's a whole uh, cottage industry here where people go around consulting churches professionally, just like there are consultants for every kind of business and organization. And in recent years, there have been autopsies that have been released on churches that have died. <laughs> and many churches have died. I mean, not only, not only just close the doors and s stop meeting, but I mean churches that are dead right now and they don't even know it. Dead and done. And, the, and it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time until all those people's hearts stop beating and then there won't be anybody left. And they're dead. Autopsies have been written and one of the common points, factors that contribute to the death of churches is when a church at some point in their history stop being outwardly focused and start only being inwardly focused. I had a guy recently in my face, literally in my space, in my face, just like that complaining about the fact that Union Chapel is a, lar a relatively large church for our community and why that's bad. And I, and I just, so I just, I pushed back and I said, well, listen, there are lots of churches in the, in the area that have 50, 60, 70 people in them, lots of churches like that. And you're welcome to attend any of those. But I said, here's the problem with a church that's 50 and it's been 50 for the last 50 years. All that says to me is that church has no longer focused outward, but it has become focused inward. And a church that's only focused inward is a church that is doomed. It's a church that is destined to die. It's going to happen that way. So we have to live in the tension that exists by being a church that reaches out. We have to live in the tension that exists between reaching and accumulating new people all the time and taking care of the folks who are already here. And so we live in that tension and we welcome that tension because it actually is healthy tension. And it's what you want because as soon as you stop growing as a person, stop growing personally, stop growing intellectually, stop growing emotionally, you stop growing. As soon as you stop growing, then you're done. You're dead. Life is over for you. So we, we, we grow all the way to the end. Growth is normal. Growth is natural. Growth is healthy. Growth is what we want. And we're going to continue to reach lost people. The church is the one institution in the world that we could say that exists primarily for the sake of its non-members. And not for the sake of those of us who are already here. Are you going to heaven? Yeah, I'm going to heaven. You have assurance of your salvation? I do. You have the witness of the Spirit that you belong to God? I do have that. Wonderful. You're in the family. Welcome. There's a bunch of folks that we know who aren't in the family yet. And the Great Commission says that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to folks who are yet to hear. And so here's my pushback to someone who says Union Chapel is too big of a church. My pushback is, as long as there is one unreached person within the sphere of influence of our church, then the church is not too big. No, it is not. Because we want to reach the lost, and we're going to do that. I can predict the future. We're going to continue to do that. You may, may remember last year in August, 1st of September, we started uh, a campaign we called the Big Push. Maybe you remember. It, the theme of it was Before I Die, and we had all kinds of special activities around that theme. And we ask you to be invitational and invite your friends and neighbors and classmates and associates to come 
for those four weeks to experience this series. And it was very effective. And we saw many, many new people come to our church and several people make decisions for Christ. Wonderful. We're going to do that again. In three weeks, beginning September 13 and 14, we're, we're going to do another big push this fall. This is going to become an annual event. And so in the next two weeks, we're going to try to inspire you to become invitational, to consider the power of the invite, power of the invitation, and how potent it can be when you can, can, can utilize the relationships you already have with people and invite them to come. And this year's theme is Upside Down. The sub-theme is because normal isn't working anymore. And I don't know if you've noticed, but normal patterns in American lives and families aren't working very well right now. And so we want to just offer people a consideration of living for Jesus and how that can make a difference, a transforming difference in their lives. So that's coming up. We're going to, we're going to win the loss. Now here's the second thing that I want to mention about our vision, and that is we want to have outreach to each unique generation. Do you remember the account one day when Jesus was at the height of his ministry and very popular and people pressing in on him all the time and crowd control was necessary and there was one occasion when Jesus was surrounded by children. I don't know what happened. He stumbled into a daycare or something and there he was and these children were just climbing all over him at his feet, clamoring for his attention. Isn't it interesting that, that Jesus is attractional for children? It's one of the ways that you can determine whether or not you're like Jesus, if children like you. It's just, a, just an interesting little quiz you might take with yourself. Walk, walk in a bunch of children and see if they, see if they come over to you. And, and they were all, they were swamping Jesus. And Jesus apparently wasn't, wasn't offended by it at all. He was enjoying it. But the old people in the group said to the children, get away from the, get away from the master. You're bothering the teacher. Leave him alone. He's busy. He's got important things. Get away from him. And what did Jesus say in response? Do you remember? Some of you remember the old King James language. I like this. And Jesus said, suffer the little children. Remember that? Suffer the little children. For such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you let those children come around me because it's right for them to want to be attracted to me. They, they're part of the kingdom as well. In fact, this is what heaven looks like. People who love me and are attracted to me. And so you suffer, suffer the little children. It's a, it's, a, it's a very important turn of phrase. I love that turn of phrase, suffer the little ones. Let me talk to you just for a minute about the generational divide. And this kind of plays into what we've been talking about, for example, last week on, on the subject of parenting. Almost always, follow this now, almost always there is rebellion by the younger generation against the older in order for them to establish themselves and the new ideas that they have in the world. This happens historically, generationally, that a younger generation comes along, views their parents and grandparents and say, you know, that's one way of doing it, but we've got a better idea. We can do this better. And so there's this push back against the established generation, the institutions and so forth, and there's this pushback. We can do it better, so we rebel against the old in order to bring in something new and fresh. And old people in history are rarely intimidated by the young. And the reason why old folks don't get intimidated by young people is because they were, after all, young themselves, and they understand the process. Well, I remember when I was that age, I felt the same way, and this is, this is the way of the world. Now, having said that, we now 
have a growing and perhaps even pervasive belief in this culture that as an old person, I cannot take the younger generation to the next stage of development. There's a growing sense among older people in our culture because of the generational divide and the dynamics of that divide in today's, today's world that suggests to older adults that I can't really lead the next generation into the next place of progress. And it's always been about the transfer of skills. You know, so years ago, it was all about, about the skills that I have obtained in my life and I need to pass on to the next generation. So you, you've got to learn how to be a candle maker or a blacksmith or a silversmith or a seamstress. But today's adults, watch, they don't have the same skills that are most prevalent in the culture as youth do. Because adults don't know how to do Facebook or texting or how to navigate a chat room or Instagram or Twitter. We have voices in the emergent culture now saying that complicates and exacerbates all of this, saying, you older folks don't get us. You don't understand our world. You don't understand our technology. You don't understand our worldview. You don't get us, and you never will. We can tell. You don't understand us, and it's not going to happen. We have a new category now that sociology has revealed to us in American culture, and it's the category of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. All of us have taken a survey in our past that asked us our religious affiliation. Religious affiliation. Remember back in the day it was Roman Catholic, Protestant, other, and the nun. Listen to these numbers. In 1960, only 5% of people who took a survey about their religious affiliation said that their affiliation was none. I have no religious affiliation. 5% in 1960. That number in America now, today, is 41%. 41% of Americans are saying, I have no religious affiliation. That should sober us. This other phenomenon I referred to last week a bit about, uh, about getting young adults to launch out of their home of origin and, and get on with their life and achieve some independence. This, this launch by the age of 30, using that as a marker, people who have left home, they've gone to school or they've gotten a job, they've become financially independent, they've married, they've started a family by the age of 30. In 1960, the number of people in America who had, who had successfully launched in the ways I've just described by the age of 30, was 70%. 70% were out there doing it independently from their parents by the time they were 30 in 1960. Today, that number, give or take, is about 40%. It's gone from 70% in 1960 now to 40%. And so there's this, there's this lag. There's this, there's this, this slow to develop there, there are these attitudes that exist. Another sociological factor that I find interesting is that we are the first generation in all of American history where parents now work for the children. Parents now work for children. We get them out of bed. We get them to practice. We get them to rehearsal. We get them to their functions. We pay their way for everything. And even after they're old enough that they should be out on their own, we're still taking care of them. Parents working for children, completely upside down from all the rest of history up to this point. 
It's an interesting phenomenon. It is, of course, the age of the virtual world, the screen age. And it's created an even greater divide. It's one of the issues, one of the factors. Older generations now are actually expressing a feeling, a sense, that the younger generation is now intruding on, on their sense of normal. You know, this is the way the world works. This is what normal feels like and looks like. But the younger generation now is pushing us and going to places that make us uncomfortable, intruding, if you will, on our sense of normal. Old people now feel helpless to take the younger to the next step, the next level. Communication technology is causing everything to level out. The world has become flat. Boundaries are changing and being blurred. Culture is changing. The world is different. It is virtually impossible to figure out the, the next shape that the world is going to take because everything is moving and changing so quickly because of communication technology. The Arab Spring from a year and a half, two years ago. Some speculate now that this was the direct result of communication technology. The revolution in Egypt, for example, happened because, because young Egyptians on their smartphones were texting each other saying, it's time for revolution. And they were all saying the same thing, thinking the same thoughts, embracing the same values, and suddenly tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets. And then it spreads across all of the Arab world, unsettling and unstabilizing an entire portion of the world, all because of communication technology. It's a fascinating world. Now here's the truth, I'm going to say it now and I'll repeat it in just a little bit. This generation of young people, while, while they are distinct and different and in so many ways unique in history, listen, they need familial, face-to-face -face love and parenting and mentoring. They need it. I mentioned this last week, that children have the same needs today as they have always had. Nothing has changed at a need level in the life of a human being, a young human being. So we need mentors. Let me tell you what a mentor is. A mentor is someone who has done it. A mentor says, I have something inside of me that I want to put inside of you. And so I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to come alongside of you, and I'm going to take what the stuff that I know, the successes and experiences that have shaped my life, and I'm going to install them into you. I'm going to mentor you. Now, let me, defi that's a, let me define coaching as something just a little bit different. Coaching is when I see something in you. Mentoring is when I see something in me that I want to put in you. Coaching is when I see something in you. I see potential in you, and I want to help you develop that potential. And so I'm going to coach you up so that you can realize the best parts of you, that I see the potential in you. So I want to coach you so that you can realize your potential. So mentors coach. Mentors say, I have something in me that I want to put in you, and I see something in you that I want to enhance. A mentor can do that. So mentors coach, but coaches don't always mentor. Coaches, on the other hand, see the potential and want to enhance whatever is in you. It's not about what I have to give to you. So mentors and coaches are important. Now, this is the age of Google. Now, follow me. Kids can have all the knowledge available in all of the history of the world. A child in eight seconds can get any piece of information from any time in history on their smartphone. They can sit in this room right now and get any fact that's ever been uncovered in any point in history in about eight seconds. 
Here's my point. Kids can get any of that information very quickly with their smartphone technology, but they cannot get wisdom. Cannot get wisdom. Wisdom cannot be found on the internet. You cannot learn wisdom from Google. It's not there. So my question to us is, who will teach them? Who will model for them? Who's going to mentor them? Who will teach them wisdom and values? You see, wisdom transfer requires relationship. It requires proximity. It's learning by watching. The way you learn how to wash a car is you watch me wash the car. The way you learn how to sew a dress is you watch me sew the dress, then I'll help you sew it. The way that you learn how to do a marriage is you say, we know how to do marriage. We've been doing it for 37 years. Watch us. We know how to do it. So watch us. And we will mentor you because we've succeeded in marriage. Now we can show you how to do it successfully. That's what's needed. Now let me just brag on a couple of folks. There's a, uh, an older adult in our church. Her name is Bev Galbraith. I don't know if, Be- I don't know if Bev's maybe here today. I don't know. Bev signed up to be a mentor with our Kids Hope program at Longview, Longfellow Elementary School. And her first day at Longfellow, she meets her little guy who she's assigned to, and he's an African-American boy, fifth grade. And she first asks herself, herself, how do I connect with this kid? And Because so, there's a generational divide, there's cultural divide, there's all kinds of distinction. And so she finds a ball that will bounce, and so she takes him out in the gym and just bounces a ball with him. He bounces it back. She catches it. She's, you know, 70 years old. She bounces the ball over to him. He bounces it back. In a little while, she's built some rapport, and she's learned about his family and learned about the things he likes to do and learned a little bit about him. And so she connects with him like family would. And so for the next several months, she's able to sit down with him once a week and help him better learn how to read. Because she's developed relationships and she's mentored this guy. And it's a great, great example of what we need. Let me brag on another couple in our church. I see Loyal standing right back there. Loyal cut forth and his wife, Flora May. Most of you know Loyal and Flora May. They're ubiquitous around here. They're everywhere all at once. They're a couple of do-gooders. The only thing they're good for that I can tell is doing good. Let me tell you about Loyal and Flora May. They're both in their 70s, and Flora May's had some health issues. She's had at least one stroke, maybe two. She's gotten a little wobbly, you know, physically, but she, but she and Loyal are here every week, and every Sunday night of the world they are here, volunteering with our youth program, oftentimes in the cafe, standing across the bar, handing a drink to a kid, and interacting with teenagers. Because they get it. Because they know these kids can't get wisdom from the, from the contact sources they have. Their families have disintegrated and they're looking to their friends and Google for answers. Are you kidding? Who's going to do it? Here's my challenge to those of us who are older. We need men and women who will champion the next generation. I need you to come alongside of me to do this. We need women who are virtuous, who can mentor younger women in the virtues of authentic womanhood. We need men who are virtuous and faithful and understand what it means to to live out their life in a Christian context 
and to be faithful to their wives and devoted to their children and successful in their work, to mentor the next generation. This generation needs familial, face-to-face love and parenting and mentoring. Listen to, to me, older adults. You don't know how much you know. You don't realize how much you understand about life because you've lived it a while. You've got experiences. You've, you've gotten through some stuff. You've overcome some challenges. You know what it takes to make it work. You know things that people who haven't lived as long as you have can't possibly know. They haven't lived long enough to know it. So the, so the mandate on, of God Almighty on an older generation is to pass on the faith, to keep the faith and then to share the faith, to mentor and coach a younger generation. We want to reach each unique generation and we want to be people who are invested that way there's been uh, there's been conversation here in the life of our church the last couple of years uh, usually from older adults about some of the changes we've made here let me just uh, give you a reminder i've mentioned to you some years ago i i got really serious with god and i said god what do you want me to focus on in in this last part of my my meaningful life and if you, if you think about your life and your career, and your, in my case, my ministry, like in a race, like a, a four-lap race, if it's a four-lap race, I'm starting the last, last lap. And it's like I've done three laps, and i got one more lap. And so I ask God, what do you want me to do in this last lap? You know, it's, it's kind of an important question, isn't it? This may be the most important. I mean, it's the last lap. It's the anchor leg. It's the finish. It's important. And so, God, what do you want me to do? And, and, I, and, I, and there were four things that I sorted this out with God. This took months for me to sort out. One is I want to keep leading faithfully. I want to keep leading Union Chapel and the things that we do, the initiatives that we under, undertake. I want to do that faithfully. I want to be the leader that God needs me to be, that needs us to be. Because everything rises or falls with good, good leadership. That's true in your life, your family, your business, wherever you are. And so I want to be faithful in that. The second thing is I want, to, I want to communicate the gospel passionately. I want to care about what I do. And, and, and in order to be passionate about what you do, you, that takes intentionality. I mean, you've got, to, you've got to position your life and stay connected in the right relationships with God and others in order to stay passionate about life all the way to the end. And I, so I want to be that. And the third thing that I sorted out with God is I want to champion the next generation. I want to do that. Now, you've heard me say that more than once in the last couple of years. You've heard me say it, but I don't think you were listening. When I say I'm going to champion the next generation, I'm not talking about some abstract principle or theory. I mean what I say. And so a lot of the changes that we made around here in the last couple of years, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars remodeling this part of the building and that part of the building and changing, changing where we worship and, and our worship style and those kinds of things, that's not a coincidence. That's not just be, because, you know, we want to be different or edgy. Listen, people who are edgy, I'm not an, I don't, I'm not an edgy leader. Edgy is like people who just like to go to the, go to the margins just for shock value, just kind of shake it up. And there are people who've accused me of that. You just want to be different just to be different. No. Here's what, here's what I'm doing. I want to be innovative. That's different than edgy. I want to innovate, which is creativity with a purpose. And my purpose is I want to champion the next generation. 
I'm going to do that. I can predict my future. I've seen me do it so far, and I just, I just bet you I'll see myself do it some more after this. I'm going to champion the next I'm a prophet. I can tell you what I'm going to do. Tomorrow, I'm going to champion the next generation. And here's what I've heard God say to me. Now, you can doubt this or question this, you know. People tell, tell them God speaks to them, you know, you wonder about them. Here's what I've heard God say to me. I've heard God say, because Union Chapel has been faithful to reach back to younger generations all these years, because you've been faithful, this has been pleasurable to God. God alone knows how many lives have been touched and changed because we have been so intentional about creating a place where, where people can hear the authentic message of the hope of Jesus Christ in a transforming way in their lives. God only knows the benefits of that in so many lives. And God's, God said to me, because, because you and Union Chapel have been so faithful to reach young people over the years, he said, I'm going to send you more. I'm going to send you more people, more young people, because I can trust you with it. So I'm going to send them to you. And I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to allow you to see a great work of God in the next generation. Listen, I'm living for that. I'm living for that. I told Jeff Hughes, our 180 pastor the other day, I said, listen, this would be perfectly all right with me if a move of God, a revival, hit the youth program and, and teenagers in this church would not allow status quo to suffice any longer. And if they would, sh they would, sh they would shake up the place with their passion and their fire for God. <laughs> Does that make you nervous? So I live for that. You heard me say God tends to use us in similar ways over the course of our lives. When I was 16 years old, I became a Christian. I was converted, 16. And in, in just weeks and months, I was at a full gallop for God. I grew up in a church that had less than 100 people in it. A little Methodist church in a little bitty no-name no town in, in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's like can anything good come out of Nazareth. That's what they say about my hometown. I mean, it's nowhere and it's nothing. And we had less than 100 people in that little town. And within 18 months, we had more teenagers attending our church than we had adults. Because we were experiencing a move of God. And I think, and revival came to our parents. Teenagers got converted, and then within three or four years, all of our parents were converted. I led my parents to Christ. I prayed the sinner's prayer with my own father. I led him to Jesus. Everything just went backwards, generationally. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Full-grown followers and devoted followers of Jesus Christ who, who have lived for Jesus for a while, they're the ones reaching the younger. That's, the, that's divine order, not the other way around. But look, if we're going to be sloppy about it, then I pray God will hit, God will hit the youth group. And if it has to come, come up from the bottom up, then so be it. But let's have a move of God, what do you say? In the meantime, why don't we posture ourselves, God, if you'll touch us, we promise we'll touch them. And that should be the posture. And I've heard, you know, I've heard the pushback about this. You know, it's too, it's too hard, it's too loud, it's too dark, it's too cold, it's too warm, it's too, it's too whatever. I'm, I'm here, and, you know, and listen, I don't, I don't want to, you know, put anyone off for any kind of reason, and we're working at this, 
And, you know, too, for example, too loud. We've, we've, bu- we've spent hundreds of dollars buying special machines that will tell us just where it's too loud in the room. We've modified things and we've added components. I mean, we're trying. You, you might notice it's a little brighter in here this morning because it's too dark. Okay, it's too dark. Put on some more light. But you understand, it's not, a, it's not about that. It's not about that. Here's, here's my choice. You know, I'm in the last lab. I'm not going to tell. I told people how old I was last night. And Beth, the coach, she's constantly, every time I tell people how old I am, she says, don't tell people how old you are. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure why she doesn't want me to. But listen, I'm old. When I'm talking about old and young today, I'm one of the old. And all of us who are older, we have a choice as we get older. We can either, we can get, either get old and crotchety and stuck in our ways and selfish about that, or we can get old and soft and pliable and prayerful and, and, and sacrificial and willing to be the servant. Who's going to model servant leadership for the next generation if we don't do it? We have to do it. I just read from Philippians. You know, I didn't hear anyone, any old people shout when, when, when the Apostle Paul says, look, prefer the other as more important than yourself. You know, I, just, I read that this morning. And no one said, amen, that's right. We could, we could do that as we champion the next generation. But that's what, I, that's what I heard when I read it. Let me brag on my dad for just a minute. You can tell I'm not following the notes very well today. I told you this isn't proper. What time is it? Oh, boy. <laughs> Everyone goes, thank God he's about out of time. He's only on point two. <laughs> it's great. Let me brag on my dad. He's a perfect example of this. My dad is 83 years old. And when my dad was in his 70s, he had a young family that moved in right next door to him. Watch this. Right next door to him. Now, his, his grandkids were got, gotten a little older by that time. And, of course, our kids were two hours away, and so he didn't get to see them very much. But my dad loves to play. He loves to play. He's always the dad out in the backyard, horsing around and, you know, coaching the little league and all that stuff. I mean, he just loves to play. And when the neighbors, new neighbors moved in, they had two small boys. Their names were Ben and Greg, Ben and Greg Anderson. And these guys were just, you know, uh, uh, grade school, middle school age. And they found out very quickly that my dad loves to play. And this was their habit for years as they grew up. They would come to my parents' house, knock on the door, and this is what they do. One of these little guys knocking on the door. He'd have a ball, baseball on his arm or a basketball under his arm or something. They'd knock on the door. When one of my parents would open the door, they're 70 years old. They'd go, can Papa come out and play? <laughs> Listen, that's what you want. That's what you want. That's, what you, that's the person you want to be. That's the, that's the, that's the guy, that's the gal that, that you want to have. As a re, you want that reputation. Can Papaw come out and play? How many 70-year-old men hear that? I just think that's great. I just think it's great. I was, I was flattered this week when some of our young guys on the staff here asked me if I would play on, this, on the church basketball team this summer, this fall. And I, I said... No. 
And they, were, and they were saying nice things about, oh, you're in good shape, you know, and we've watched you shoot around, and you could really help us out. And I said, yeah, well, that's too bad. Because <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I'm still good at horse, but that running back and forth and that constant banging, not so much, not so much. And I said, besides, why would, why would we want to torment the Bas Baptist with an old geezer, you know, showing him up like that? Uh, it wouldn't be nice to take it out on the Baptists and the Presbyterians like that. Just because they're an inferior talent to, to, to us Methodists. Not a big deal. <laughs> okay. Let me use my last few minutes and talk about strategic missions. Relevant worship, you know, that's, that's where we're going. We want to do that. Strategic missions. Let me just let me talk about this for a minute. You've heard me use this phrase. Every church and every Christian should be intentionally and strategically engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission. Hear me. Every Christian should be praying, should be giving, should be going, should be doing something to intentionally and strategically engage in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Now, in the next 90 seconds, I'm going to tell you things that 90% of Christians in America don't know. Number one, David Barrett, who's the leading evangelical missiologist in the world, he has recently reported that there are now 170 million Christians worldwide who live as intercessors for the, to see the fulfillment of the Great Commission. 170. He said there are 10 million separate prayer meetings that occur every day and are through the week around the world by intercessors raised up by God with an anointing of His Spirit to pray that God would cause the last and the least and the lost to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Great Commission fulfilled. He said there has never been anything like it in all of human history. Seventy percent of all the initiatives that have ever been engaged to fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, seventy percent of everything that's ever been attempted in the last 2,000 years has been done since 1900. Seventy percent of that since World War II, 1945, 46. And seventy percent of that has taken place in the last 10 years. Now listen, you don't hear that on NBC Nightly News. You won't, hear, you won't even hear Fox News talking about this. But there is a move of God on the planet right now. There are places in the world that are very difficult. We, we hear reports now out of northern Iraq and the horrible persecution and these radical terrorists who are killing people and lopping off their heads and, and Christians in northern Iraq, entire families and villages are being wiped out, our brothers and sisters. And finally, national news in America say, you know, we don't like Christians, and we, we, in fact, we hate Christians, but, you know, even that's bad. You know, we have to report that Christians are dying in northern Iraq. And it's horrible. But at the same time, God is at work. His Spirit is moving. Saudi Arabia, there are thousands of people coming to Jesus in Saudi Arabia, which is arguably the toughest place in the world uh, to know about Jesus. And the reason they're coming to Jesus is because God is revealing himself to them in visions and dreams. Jesus is literally showing up 
in front of these Muslims in these hardcore parts of the world in visions and dreams. Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you seek. Come and follow me. And people are getting shaken to the core. In northern Africa, in this hardcore radical Islam, in places like Morocco and Algeria, there is a move of God. And it's unprecedented in history. The, the world's mission force is no longer European and American, white Anglo-Saxon. The mission force of the world 150 years ago was primarily and predominantly white people. But not anymore. The predominant missionaries in the world, they're Africans and they're Asians and they're South Americans, Central Americans. And they're, they're distributing themselves all over the planet. And there's a move of God in the world today that is unprecedented. Now listen, we can sit here in, in Delaware County, Muncie, Indiana, most of us white, most of us middle class, and most of us unaware of what in the world God's doing, but listen, we're not going to sit here like this and not be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission says to go, and so that's exactly what we are going to do. We are going to find our place. We've been in Kazakhstan for the last 17 years, and things in Kazakhstan, are, are, are in Kazakhstan is shifting right now, and we're sorting that out, and the dust is going to settle there, so let me predict the future. Because every local church and every believer ought to be intentionally and strategically involved in seeing the fulfillment of the Great Commission. In 2015, and I'll prophesy now for you, in 2015, Union Chapel is going to hire a full-time missions pastor here. And what I envision this person doing is they are going to develop systems and structures in the life of our church that will intentionally be begin to pipeline young adults. We have teenagers right now presenting themselves saying, I feel a call to missions. I feel a call to full-time vocational missionary work somewhere in the world, maybe here or there. They're, they're actually talking out loud about this. We, it's, we haven't even put a net out to try to catch people like that. But they're emerging. They're just, God is just spontaneously combusting these kids. And they're stepping forward saying, here we are. We want to be used of God in the world. And so what I want to see happen is to build a structure where, where we can build internships and discipleship program and leadership development programs where we can pipeline these young adults. We take kids from Ball State and Taylor and Anderson and parts between and take these guys maybe in the last year or two of their college program or just post-grad, put them through a year or two of uh, internship, team them up and send them somewhere in the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the mystery of the church, friends. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Now listen to me. Jesus is coming. He's coming again. And the culture around us poo-poos the whole Christian message and the historicity of the Christian faith. But I'm telling you, the mystery of the faith is Christ has died, Christ is risen from the dead, and Christ is coming again. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. And until that day comes, we are not going to see the return of Jesus. And so we want to do whatever part God has called us to play as a local church to see the Great Commission fulfilled. We're going to be part of it. That's what we're going to do. I can predict the future. Just as sure as I'm standing here, we're going to do that. This is not abstract. This is not just a, a notion. This is not a thought. This is something we're going to do. <laughs> We've done it. I've seen me do it before. And I'm, I mean, we've, we've, we've already done it in Kazakhstan. I've seen us do it. And I'm going to see us do it again. 
because God tends to use people in similar ways over the course of their life. Well, you know the story of home groups. You should be in a small face-to-face fellowship. That's where life transformation happens. You want to grow in your faith? Get in a group. Get in a group. We'll help you. We're going to continue to impact the church. We want any other church that needs whatever help we have, we want to give it to them. We do, we have, we will. We've done it before, we'll keep doing that. We want to continue to do practical ministry. When you ask a person in the community, do you know about Union Chapel? They won't say, well, that's a great... That's a great preaching church, or that's a great teaching church, or that's a great small group church, or that's a, uh, you know, that's a, uh, a great sending church, those kinds of things. What, what we're known for is acts of service in the community. That in the youth program. You ask people, oh, that's a church that does 180. Oh, yeah, my, you know, I walk in the post office the other day. The guy at the post office, I get acquainted with him. He said, yeah, my son used to go to your youth program. Really made a difference in his life. I want to thank you for that. You know, we've had 120,000 different kids come to our youth program in the last 12 years. And we're going to continue to serve people's needs. We're going to serve. We're going to rehab houses. We're going to feed people. We're going to bless people. We're going we're to help folks in need in practical ways. We're going to do practical ministry. I can predict the future. I'm a prophet. We're going to keep helping people. You watch. You watch. I believe... You, you tell me your vision, and I can predict your future. I've told this story before. I, I love it. It's a great story. And we'll conclude with this. Walt Disney, you may recall, did not survive to see the grand opening of Disney World Orlando. 50,000 acres of this spectacular amusement park. Most of you have been there. It, it really is magical. And this wonderful place. And Walt Disney never saw it completed. On the day that it was dedicated... His wife, his widow, brought a friend with her so she wouldn't be alone for the grand dedication. And just as they, Mrs. Disney cut the ribbon and the band started playing, the fireworks went off and the parade and the procession started, Mrs. Disney's friend turned to Mrs. Disney and said, it's too bad that Walt never got to see this. And less than a second transpired when... Walt Disney's widow spun to her friend and said, no, no, you're wrong about that. Walt saw all of this. That's why it's here, because he saw it. You tell me your vision, and I'll predict your future. May God inspire us today. May God encourage us today. May God cause us to stand up together, hand in hand and arm in arm, and together go toward goals that matter not only today but for eternity. Because 100 years from now, we'll celebrate what God has done because of the vision, the compelling vision He's given us. Amen? Stand up with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You this morning for lamping our feet, lighting our way. You've promised that You would go before Your righteous people, that You would, you would blaze the trail before them. So, Lord, we pray, lead out. Lead on, O King, and we will follow You. Help us to do so faithfully, passionately, and with a great sense of purpose and vision. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.